All right, this was awesome. Today we hosted our first Things We Talk, where we at Boost BC pick the most important topic of the day and host two experienced people to drop some knowledge on us. The topic today was living through the dot-com boom and bust in contrast to the current market environment. And the guests were Mark Andreessen, co-founder and general partner of Andreessen Horowitz, or the Andreessen in Andreessen Horowitz, and Tim Draper, founder and manager director of Draper VC, aka my dad. I'm going to get out of the way and just let you listen. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. Uh, Please let me know how you liked it. Welcome, everyone, to the most important thing you could be doing today and any day of the week or year. My name is Adam Draper. I'm the founder and managing director of Boost VC. And at Boost VC, our mission is to accelerate the sci-fi future, which makes this conversation all the more important. Sharing a transparent conversation about what happened during the dot-com crash and beyond will give us more clarity on how to react into a currently uncertain future. The reason that we decided to host this was because we sat around one morning and we realized uh, we were listening to all these people or supposed experts sort of claiming what the market is today and comparing it to the dot-com bubble. But what I realized was none of those people lived through the dot-com bubble or worked during the dot-com bubble. And so we decided so you to read it old guys. <laughs> so so these two these two random people qualified because they were old enough. Uh, <laughs> what we did, we immediately made a list of two people who we thought were the freest thinkers in the business, Mark and Dreesen and Tim Draper. Luckily, they both said yes, so I didn't need to go to number three. Tim Draper, in order to get an experienced perspective on what is happening today, as well as I'm hoping to cover what you wished you would have uh, done after the dot-com boom, which I, I always feel like hindsight's 2020. It'd be really interesting to hear. Mark Andreessen is a builder. He's credited with the invention of SSL and the founding of Netscape, the first consumer internet browser. He survived the crash while building Opsware, right? Like that was during the crash. And after building many other companies, he went on to build one of the most iconic venture capital funds ever. Andre, he's the Andreessen and Andreessen Horowitz or A16Z as we call it, even though saying injuries and Horowitz is actually faster than saying A16Z. Tim Draper, aka my dad, uh, he's credited with the invention of viral marketing, worked for seven years as a solo VC, before, which few people know that. Very few people know that it was seven years before you like went commercial on this business. As a solo VC before uh, taking on partners to eventually form DFJ, a 35-year-old brand, where he made venture capital global, and from there, founded Draper University. Both have invested in and supported thousands of founders at this point, and they also experienced the dot-com boom and bust from different angles, builders, investors. Let's learn a bit about what they did at the time and understand the advice they would impress upon founders, investors alike. I would, I would actually argue that these two collectively have invested in, through Web 1, through Web 3, the most iconic and important companies that ever existed with network effects. And so that would be Hotmail, Skype, Coinbase, Airbnb, just uh, like it's one after the other. And so let's discuss. Thanks for coming, guys. I just want to give a quick intro to frame the conversation. You didn't say I, I spun out and did Draper Associates again. Oh, yeah. Sorry. As a, 
as things are circular in life, uh, you spun out and because uh, that gave me the freedom to do all the crazy, crazy things I've been able to do that really worked. Uh, Some of them worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, let's let, let's let's talk about those things here. I wanted to ask one very specific question first. Where was the first money you ever made in your life? Uh, Mark, you go. You go ahead. Mowing lawns um, in the Wisconsin summer. And for people who don't know Wisconsin, it is freezing tundra nine months out of the year and it's incredibly hot three months out of the year. So, you move, so you've moved back? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so uh, mowing lawns at five bucks a pop or whatever it was in those days was, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that, was a very, that was very motivating uh, to figure out how to, uh, how to, get, how to get, get forward from there. So mine was selling apples. Um, I picked all these apples from our tree and I sold them out on the street. And I did it for about three or four weeks. And uh, every once in a while, somebody would come along and, and people started to attach themselves to this. And, um, and then at the end of that three or four weeks, the neighbor's mother came up to me and said, well, so how much money have you made? And I said, eight dollars and she said here give me the eight dollars and she proceeded to take my eight dollars and hand one dollar to each of the other people that had been kind of hanging around one to me and she took two herself and i said at that point i realized that socialism would never work <laughs> and by then I just was this, you know, that system didn't work. There was no motivation. Everybody got a dollar because I mean I'd been doing it for four weeks and they just happened to be there that day. That did not work for me. And she took two away. It was yep. like, oh, you're you're teaching me what government is doing. And her 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 name, Kamala Harris. <laughs> 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 just in, in for a penny and for a pound, just teaching you about entrepreneurship early. Yeah, uh, I think she did me a big favor. She made me politically very, as William Buckley says, I have always been politically correct. <laughs> <laughs> that touches on a lot of different topics, but uh, where, where do you two go for your media? So I'd say a lot of people who are in the audience and beyond, like the internet is full of different media sources, including individuals. Where do you two sort of filter? You mean instead, rather rather than in addition to Meet the Drapers, Boost PC podcast, and so, whatever Andreessen writes? <laughs> so just, it's only pushing. We I mean, only beyond push. that, what else do I really need to see? That's a good point. Is there, well, is there a filter? Do you follow New York Times anymore? Wall Street Journal? Do you, is there any? Yeah, Mark, you can go ahead and answer that first and I'll maybe comment. Yeah, so I barbelled my, my, my reading. So I basically read either, what I try to do is either the most timely stuff or the most timeless stuff. And basically the most timely stuff is my Twitter feed. Um, and the timeless stuff is books. And I would say as, you know, the older I get, the older I want the books to be. Current current uh, mode that I'm in is any book written prior to the 1960s is is uh, is is uh, prob probably bad. The older the book, the better, because because for a book to have survived for 100 years or 200 years or 300 years or 2,500 years, like it has to be really good. 
Um, and so there, and, and, and human nature hasn't changed at all. And so if you're interested in learning about people and how they work, uh, I find uh, old books are the best. Um, so you're, you're saying anything before 1960 is good. Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I misheard. Well, you have to get out of, so the, the problem with everything in the middle of the barbell, the problem with everything that's not literally what happened like five minutes ago or what happened like 500 years ago, the problem with everything in the middle is it's, is it's, is it's everything that's like about what happened in the last week or the last month or the last year, even the last decade, it's so loaded up with all of the biases and assumptions and politics and social arguments of our time, right? And everybody's got an agenda and everybody's trying to sell a point of view on something. And so it's really hard to find anything written about events in the last decade, two decades. I, I would say even in the last five decades, it just isn't overlaid with this incredibly strong, you know, let's just say, I don't know what you want to call it, like, like philosophical, bias. almost it's like political bias, but it's more than that. It's like philosophical bias. Um, or just like assumption bias. And so it's, it's hard to kind of get away from that and kind of get to like basically more fundamental under, under underlying uh, truths. Having said all that, I will say, you know, I think what, what uh, you know, what Tim and I probably, something Tim and I probably have in common is we, we have another source of information, which is a little bit unusual, right? Which is we get to talk to the, we get to talk to the people on this call. Like we get to talk to the practitioners. And so, you know, one of, one of the things that makes this kind of job very interesting for me and kind of perpetually interesting for me is that, you know, basically it's like every day, these incredibly smart people walk in the door who are real experts, right? Almost 100% of the time, they're real experts in the space they're talking about. You know, they just have so much knowledge and wisdom about what's happening in their domain. And so to, to be able to hear direct from them, I, I just find as, you know, it, it's hard. It's really, really difficult to find anything written that compares to the, the, the quality of information that we get through direct uh, conversations. And by the way, it's, it is so striking. You could say like, it's striking that that's the case. It's striking that somebody like me would think that because it just basically says there's still arbitrage in the world, right? There, there is still a big difference between conventional wisdom and what the smart people know. And, you know, we, we in tech and startups and venture capital all live kind of in that arbitrage. And it, it seems to me to be as big a divide as, as it's ever been. And probably these days, it's probably even a bigger divide than it was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, you know, that's fun. I was going to say, you know, what do I read? I read emails and yeah. all the emails have lots <laughs> and lots of business plans for lots of things that are going to project out five to 10 years and what the future is going to look like. So I have a pretty good view of the future. I try to keep up, but I, that usually means I read the Financial Times or the Economist once a week or something. I, I try to keep up with all the things that are going on today, but it, sometimes it's just noise. And then the long-term things, I love what Mark said. I read science fiction when I'm kind of just hanging out. And if you go science fiction that's more than 20 years old, that's pretty fun too. But somehow picked up Tom Swift books and he predicted everything. Yeah. And he was, it, these books are from like 1904 or something. He predicted everything. Yeah. Um, so it's really fun to kind of go through and realize that, that sci-fi actually does predict the future or maybe the future happens because somebody wrote about it. And then um, I'm reading about California water right now because it's yet another place where the California bureaucracy has put too many regulations in. And the reason we don't have all the water we need, which we could, is that they've blocked all, all sorts of progress. So it, it's happened again. So seeking past, present, future wisdom is pre-1960, present founders who are experts in their domain and sci-fi future is uh, the sci-fi. Yeah, well, and that pre-1960 thing, I, I look at that for any kind of drug I put in my body too. 
yeah. it's got to have gone through for me 20 or 30 years where it's been approved and it's gone through and I've seen all the data and nobody died from it. Then I'm kind of okay. We're still waiting on that drug. Right. We, there's nothing. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing. It's air and water for me. That's it. Water and food. So, okay. Uh, and this is uh, obviously, Pat, I wanted to sort of correlate past with present. And to get you in the mindset, I wanted to ask during the crash, if you can get there, what did you do for fun? What was a fun thing that you did uh, in that time frame in the 2000, early 2000s? 2000. So it was really, for, for us, it was really rough. Ben, my partner, Ben, wrote a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And it's, it's about this time period. It's about what we went through. So he's, he's written the story probably better than I can even tell it. But, um, you know, it was rough. Like we, we launched our company, the company Ben and I started together, LoudCloud. We, we launched in September of 99. We like perfectly top ticked the market. Like it was just like... <laughs> extraordinary like finesse we exactly picked the high point you know that that's where that was like the last six months of the uh, sort of co combined tech and telecom you know kind of thing that happened back then the the, the high point um and then uh, we, we actually yeah, i mean we, we were smoking hot coming out of the gate we actually launched on the cover of wire magazine which was really rare at that point like that was that was a really hard thing to do and then um and then we racked up like we had an incredibly fast revenue takeoff because uh, we were selling basically early cloud to basically dot coms and it was just this like incredible growth market at the time and then we, you know, along with the rest of the industry, like hit the wall really hard, um, starting in probably mid 2000 and then extending, you know, for, the, for like the next five years. Um, and so I started lifting weights and I started specifically lifting really, really heavy weights. So I found a trainer in a gym uh, that comes from the school of, you know, this whole thing where you do eight reps, 10 reps. They're like, nope, we're going to like work on how, how about, how about three? And we're going to load you up with so much weight that, you know, if you get three reps done, like, you know, you're going to, and then, you know, how about 10 sets of that? And so I started lifting weights and then I started eating just like enormous numbers of calories. Um, and I got, I will say I legit, I like got jacked. That was like the one time in my it was like the one time in my life where I was like, shit, like I have to buy new shirts. Um, like they don't fit anymore um, in, in a good way. And it, 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 was, it was a really good way to burn off the stress, I have to say. So for me, we actually, we hit it just right. We had just raised about a more than a billion dollars, billion four, half of which we probably shouldn't have raised, which went domestic. And the other half was international and it hit the ball out of the park. Um, and so we were in great shape and I had arranged for an amazing party, 2001, a cyberspace odyssey before the crash had hit. And I had already paid for everything and it was all ready to go and all that. And uh, so I said, well, we got to have a party. One writer wrote, Tim Draper doesn't understand that the party's over. <laughs> but this was 2001, a cyberspace odyssey. Um, I wore a space suit and, and it, with a video camera and the camera blasted everything up on a big jumbotron. And we, we rented out the, the hangar at Moffett Field and people would come in and they'd get a little cassette tape at the, at the guard's place and they'd be handed a cassette tape and they'd play this cassette and it says, you know, little mission impossible thing where your mission should you decide to accept it and then you go go through this tube which where they give you a drink to decompress going into the space 
world and we had space everything was you know we had a space bar and we had all these space we had a cyclotron by the way we we did a lot for fun and then realized that you know oh sorry we're supposed to be depressed right now (laughs) i made a video from christmas for my dad one year and i went through all of this footage so i am gonna find it and make a very funny reel out of it for this podcast Okay, both of you had a little success going into the dot-com boom. So, Mark, you with Netscape, and Dad, you had just closed a big fund. Evidently, I didn't realize that it was timed well. So that was beautifully. Congrats! Nineteen ninety-nine, two thousand, we raised them, and there were two funds, and one was domestic, and I was focused on the international because I was thinking, oh, travel around the world and spread this pixie dust to everybody and give everybody get venture capital and entrepreneurship around the world and it turned out that worked but our domestic fund it was not good timing it was really rough and both 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 of you and then we had to face our limited partners and i it was that was a you know it was a firing squad (laughs) you internationally found new founders and you brought venture capital to sort of the world, Everywhere, China, Eastern uh, Europe, we and, had a great time. And Mark, you you were a founder, so you have like this, you know, you got that founder commitment energy locked down. Do you think founders are forged or are they born? Like, what is the what is the right chemistry in order to create a successful entrepreneurship? That's for you, Mark. Yeah, I mean, look, it's an incredibly complicated topic. I mean, you you guys do as much as anybody at trying to train them up. So um, with your with your program, so you, you guys have thought about this a lot. You know, look, I think there's part of it that's nature. It's it's like a lot of things. It's, it's some combination of nature and nurture. There's part of it that's nature. The nature parts I would highlight, which is you you need somebody who kind of is simultaneously very smart. You need somebody who's very open to new ideas, but you also need somebody who's like disciplined um, and has like a real work ethic and a determination to get things done. Um, and then you also need that person to have social skills um, so that they can build a team and run a company and sell products to customers and raise money and do all the things that involve other human beings. And so it's like these four personality traits that kind of need to come together in the, in the same person. And it's just it's, it's just like it's just there, there just aren't that many of those people running around. And then, you know, look, and then they need the skills. Right. And so then they, they need to actually learn how to do all the things. And, you know, sometimes they get lucky enough where they get trained up working for another startup or working for a big company and they get put in positions of responsibility and they learn skills. But, you know, almost nobody has the complete skill set when they start a company. I certainly didn't have the skill set when I started my first company or even my second company. What what do you what do you think you lacked or did you just never have it and you decided, hey, I'm going to find someone who compliments me? What was that thing? Yeah, starting the first company, I mean, there I was the I was the junior I was the junior partner, so Jim Clark, who was a very experienced uh, founder, and uh, you know, I just I I didn't know. I mean, basically, I knew tech. The good news is I knew technology. I knew I knew how to build products uh, at that point, um, but I did I just didn't know anything about business. Like I'd never even taken the time to you know I do I don't know I maybe used Excel once or something. Like I I didn't you know, it's like okay P and L, but you know <laughs> budget balance sheet, okay credits <laughs> assets liabilities. All right, what's all this? You know, I'd never manage anybody. Um, you know, I'd never recruited anybody. So, you know, all the, all the sort of, you know, soft skills is kind of a bad term, but all, all the human stuff, all the business stuff, you know, I didn't ever take a business class, uh, or anything like that. You know, I, I had read a lot. So I had read a lot. I'd read a lot of business books, although, you know, that doesn't frankly get you very far. Um, you know. I, unless it's before 1960, which we learned. Yeah. <laughs> 
you can read. Yeah, I'll give you an example. My, uh, my years of General Motors uh, by uh, El- uh, Alfred Sloan, who was the CEO who made General Motors, who was a great sort of founder CEO of his time. That's actually a good business book from the 1920s. So that, that you can actually learn a lot from that one. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's hard to find. Basically, other than Andy Grove in the last 50 years, it's, it's hard to find good business books. Um, Clay Christensen. It's just really hard to find as a book that's like honestly written by somebody who's actually built a company about what it actually took. Right. You, you, you get these kind of victory lap books where it's like, here's how smart I am. And those aren't very helpful. And then you get the books of these just giant flaming disasters. And those aren't very helpful. Um, and then you get, you know, a lot of academics who have never you know worked for a company before. So I guess they, they have things to say. So it's just it's hard to read this stuff anyway. So, you know, look, a lot of it, you know, they do, do teach, I, I hear they teach you some of this stuff in business school. I've not personally, you know, I've not personally done that. You know, a lot of it's learning on the job. A lot of it's learning, you know, the best case scenario is you're in an environment, you know, you've got, you know, you're in an environment that has some sort of formal training program. A lot of, you know, a lot of sort of bigger companies have formal training programs. You can learn some of this stuff, management training. A lot of it's partnership. And so Jim and I were able to partner on Netscape. And then later, you know, Ben and I, you know, I learned a lot between 94 and 99 when I started, you know, Netscape and then LoudCloud with Ben. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I, I still, you know, made a real point partnering with Ben for LoudCloud because he was a much more sort of skilled uh, manager, right? Uh, you know, CEO, leader, you know, he's much stronger business skills even than I had at that point. A lot of this has to do with, uh, with, with team formation. I, I certainly benefited from, from always having good partners like that. The answer I would give to that question about nurture or nature was, I still don't know the answer, except that when, whenever anybody tells me something can't be done, I always think, huh, how would we do it? And, uh, and so that somehow that just goes through my mind. And that's why I started Draper University of Heroes is I, I realized all these people said, you can't teach entrepreneurship. And I thought, huh, how would I teach entrepreneurship? I mean, none of them were thinking we're going to put them through survival training with Navy SEALs. We're going to give them hackathons. We're going to make them pitch somebody else's company. We, we do crazy things there. But I just thought if I'm going to create entrepreneurs, I'm going to have to really create entrepreneurs. And now we've, we've had 3,000 students through there and they've started about 800 companies and eight are unicorns. So I, I think those odds are better than they would have been if they hadn't gone through our program. So maybe you can, I don't know, maybe you can. And, and, they come from 102 different countries. So maybe all they needed was the opportunity. It may have been just like, get me to the Silicon Valley from Pakistan or from you know Myanmar and then let me get let me show what I can do. And and those people had major drive before it was just an opportunity that they would never have had if they hadn't been able to sort of jump into the Silicon Valley with both feet. You both actually even in just your answers to that question, you've both gone against the the like traditional thought processes on uh, a lot of different things in your histories. Mark, with SSL, you went against the grain and it sounded like the government didn't want encryption. You wanted encryption uh, <laughs> for the better of the Internet and the Web. And dad, you tried to break California in six states and then three states and had you both had your own crusades. What does it take to get more people trying to think about what goes against the grain, I guess, is, is my, my, the core of the question. It's how do you get more people thinking more freely that they can do, 
rather than they can't do. Mark, you want to take that? Yeah, look, there's some people who are just there's a there's a, there's sort of five basic personality traits, um, and one of them is is called agreeableness, or or you know, in the reverse is disagreeableness. And there are some set of people who are just so disagreeable that they're just always going to march to the beat of their own drummer, right? And they're they're almost irrepressible in their willingness to disagree with conventional wisdom. And you know, look, you know, a lot of the most famous figures, you know, you, you know, they score these things on zero to hundred, and it's like Elon Musk is clearly hundred percent on disagreeableness. You know, Steve Jobs clearly was. Bill Gates clearly was like they're they're just they're not going to fit into the existing structure. They're going they're going to blaze their own path, and so you know there's some number of people like that who are just going to do it. And then I think you know Tim to your point, like there's some larger number of people who are like high in disagreeableness and very determined, but you know messages from society, messages from so many societies and so many times, including ours, like so much of the messaging is to conform. Right. And so much of the messaging is to fit into the slots, fit into the, you know, fit into the, fit into the tracks. Somebody was just telling me they went to work for actually a really big tech company when they were, you know, years back. And, you know, the very first speech they got the very first day was, you know, we are not going to listen to anything you say for the first five years that you're here. Right. Like you're just like, you know, your job is to sit and shut up and listen. You can't possibly have anything to contribute. And, and, you know, that's kind of reflective of like a lot of what society kind of programs you kind of by default. And, and, and you can even say like there's a good and valid reason for it, which is like a society needs cohesion. You know, a society needs most people to kind of fall in line and kind of get in the box and kind of you know go along with the program. Um, but there are some number of people where it's like, OK, if all they're told is conform, they might want to deviate, but they might not have the confidence to do that or they might not have the awareness that it's even possible. And so the answer to your question, I think, is the people who deviate have to be heroes, right? So it, it has to be that like the people who, who are disagreeable and chart their own path are heroes. And by the way, it has to be that they're heroes, even when they don't always succeed, right? It, it has to, it, you know, Steve Jobs said, it's like the journey is the reward. Like there has to be something heroic about attempting, right? Even when, even when it doesn't pan out. And, you know, and, and I would say like, that's a choice that we all get to make about how we contribute to society, which is like, what do we value? And do, and do we really value the people who set out on their own? And do we really value their attempts to do unusual things? And, and then how do we react to them when their things don't work? Do we, you know, condemn them, condemn them as losers and idiots? Or do we say, wow, you know, that was, you know, I'm really glad that somebody tried that. And we really, you know, they learned a lot. We learned a lot. I'm really glad society has people who will try new things. On uh, the scale of like, let's say, New York Times to Steve Jobs, where are you? <laughs> Proposing that the New York Times is, is at peak disagreeableness, pressure to conform, or peak agreeableness. So peak agreeableness, but pressure, like, yeah, what, 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 what level are you? Are, are, do you yeah. feel, yeah, do you feel like you are of the disagreeables? I'm very disagreeable. I just, as an objective, just, I, I just have to say, I don't, it's not a brag, it's just a statement of truth. I, I am very disagreeable. I always have been. Uh, I never like being told what to do. I always, I always hated it. Somebody, somebody said we were talking. I was on a uh, our partner Shriram. We we did a, a podcast the other night, and he's like, you know, we we're talking about all this employee activism. He was talking about. He asked me if I had ever signed any sort of like employee letter, you know, any sort of protest letter or whatever, you know, to management. And I was like, and I read, it dawned on me. It's like I've never I, in my adult life I've never worked at a company I didn't start. So. <laughs> So I would, so I would therefore only be writing the letter to myself, right? Which you know, by the way, does sound like something I would do. 
you know, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, I have a bone to pick with you. And of course, that's me. So, um, you know, I, I, look, I think at that point, it's been nearly 30 years now with this. I think I, I have to rank myself as highly disagreeable. That said, I look at, you know, Elon, as, just as an example, I look at Elon and like, he's like light years. He's way beyond where I am. Like it just, I, I look at how, how disagreeable would you have to be to think that it's a good idea to not only start a new car company in the United States in the, 20, in the 21st century, but a new car company and a new rocket company at the same time. Right. Like the level of disagreeableness required to do that is like cosmic level. Uh, And and again, this goes back to like, what do we value? I just think like we're, you know, Elon gets a lot of flack from a lot of people. And I just think it's like, look, do we want to live in a society that has somebody like that? Right. Who's able to do that kind of thing. And like, look at what we look look at, what society gets as a result from that. And it's like, hell yes, that's the society we want to live in. Like we want to, we want to reward him. We want to value him. And we want, you know, to do anything we can to make sure we have more, more people like that. He got the governor of California to agree to not include Tesla in the shutdown. So every manufacturer had to shut down except Tesla. Right. How disagreeable. Yeah. Right. Wherever the flag. That's pretty good. That's that's right on the edge. That's like, whoa, you are, you know, and then the SEC, you know, has been all over him. And he's just like, hey, you want me around or not? One thing I'd like to add to this is how do you get it going first getting it going that's like do you get a few friends around or people who are really talented to come join you and that's one thing but then how do you it has to you have to have this real determination because you're going to go through all sorts of fits and starts and and it won't go just the way you planned it to so you got to just keep pounding away. And so I think persistence is a big part of perseverance through really difficult times to get your message out there, whatever that may be. Uh, That's a big part of it. I think that, you know, getting something going is, is important, but persevering through thick and thin and when the ship's about to go down and everybody leaves the ship and you're still at it, that's a powerful force. And that willingness to go to believe in it, even when the rest of the world isn't believing in it, that's what it really takes to really make a difference. And mark it on another great thing, which is, look, if you start a business, you're pushing the ball forward. If you succeed, great. If you fail, great, because you have whatever, you've made the competitor better. You've, you've pushed technology forward. You've given people a new idea. Whatever it is, it's something positive. So I always feel like when I'm talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs, look, go for it, try it, keep going, keep going. And look, if it totally fails, you've learned a lot and the world has benefited from your your learning. So I do think it's great for people. And uh, although I don't wouldn't use the word disagreeable, I do sort of feel like you've got to be willing to stand up to peer pressure. And the way I would describe it is, uh, I mean, I I didn't drink or smoke or take drugs until I was 21. And I had huge peer pressure there. And I realized that the, the group think is not always right. And that was sort of the beginning of my guidance toward the away from the New York Times and toward Elon. And I kind of gravitate toward Elon, I admire him because of what, not just what he's done, what he's willing to do. I mean, how far he's willing to go. And that is, uh, 
you know, that's where he's a hundred percent and I'm, you know, 98.6. So now that we've formed the club of disagreeables, which I am a hundred percent joining as long as I get up for membership, I feel the topic of the day, the current is, or the consensus view is that we are headed into a recession and the contrarian in me or the, the disagreeable in me says, well, we can't all believe it and be right, but we can't all not believe it either. And so there's, there's truth there somewhere. Are we in a recession? Tim, what do you think? Well, you know, you're, there are a lot of definitions of recession. There is data that shows the markets are sliding. People are getting laid off. How do you define recession? A lot of, here's what's, you're kind of looking, where's the optimistic scenario here? When you have a slide like this, I got the benefit of, you know, being in there and watching the slide the last time. So if you get to watch the movie twice, you usually, I mean, my memory is not that good, but it's not (laughs) bad. And you watch a slide like that. And then what happens is you see first the companies clamp down and they cut their marketing budget. They cut their HR budget. they They cut a lot of their budgets. And, uh, and a lot of good people get laid off. The other thing that happens is some good companies start spiraling down and those good people who are in those companies are now let go. And what happens then is those good people say, huh, I liked what these guys were doing, but the customer was saying this, I'm going to start a business. And so usually these cycles are really powerful for people to go have that feeling that they can go out and start a business. And some we've done some analysis here, and it turns out one or two years after a session is when all the best companies in the world, the biggest, most valuable companies in the world were started, almost all of them. You know, Apple and, Apple and, and Microsoft were started just after the 73, 74 crashes. Bunch of software companies were started after the 83, 82, 83 downturn. All the internet companies were started after the uh, the in early, like mid-90s, where things were really down in the dumps. And then in 2001, the or 2003, 4, a lot of the marketplace companies were created, you know, Airbnb and Uber. And then after the crash of 2008, Bitcoin was started. So it really feels as though, you know, a time like this is like a a purging and the companies start thinking what's really important to us and they cut everything else. And uh, the people who get cut or the people who leave thinking their company's going out of business, they go and they start thinking fresh thoughts with new technologies, technology that's moved forward four years from when the other company was started or 10 years from the other company was started. So I'm looking, I'm thinking that is probably going to happen again. And I'm going to probably do a lot of seeding. Mark, do you have any thoughts on just the overarching, like, I'd say most of the conversations I'm having right now are like, blocking and tackling with the the portfolio saying like, hey, get ready for a long winter. But you know, we could be wrong. What's something you might be encouraging your founders to do that most people might not be? 
Yeah. So um, one of our, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tease one of our competitors, not by name, but one of our competitors put out a very stern statement in the last, what, a few weeks, basically saying, you know, it's the end of the world, batting down the hatches, you know, fire, start firing, start laying people off. You know, uh, that same group did it the last time, too. So they did it actually, the same group did it in 2008. Um, uh, and, then, and in 2001. And in 2001 and, and in 2020. Um, so <laughs> they did it were two years early on that they did, one. They did it two years ago. They did it in March of, in March of 2000 when the stock market right fell at the beginning of COVID. If you remember, the stock market fell hard and then like, you know, had this like screaming recovery over the next two years. And a lot, a lot of, lot of, a lot of tech sectors, you know, a lot of tech sector activity actually did really well kind of through COVID. They put out this new statement and they, they said, it's a very funny thing in there. And their, their deck had a lot of smart things to say, but a very, it was a very funny statement, which is, now we realize that we said all the same things we're saying now in two years ago uh, uh, in the spring of 2020. Um, we, we can see that we were wrong then, but we are certain that we are correct now. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a couple different ways to interpret that level of certainty. So uh, look, I think the big thing that we say and the big thing that I believe is like, look, th- there is nobody who can predict the future on macroeconomic stuff. There's like, you can turn on any TV, sh- any financial TV show or read any, you know, th- any of these, you know, magazines or newspapers and they'll be giving, you know, there'll be lots of incredibly well credentialed experts giving you all kinds of like absolutely certain forecasts for what's going to happen in the economy. None of them know. There's like reams and reams of data that none of them know. You know, Warren Buffett doesn't think he can do it. Like, I don't know why I'd be able to do it. So nobody has like predictive ability. Like the economy is too complex. Like, there's too many moving parts. There's too many things going on. It's not possible. No, nobody's yet figured out a way to model it in a way that would lead it to be predictable. Almost everything that happens is a surprise. So um, so there's there's no way to predict what happens. You know, that said, like what we encourage our companies to do is to kind of think hard about the specific circumstances of your business and then, you know, think in terms of scenarios and contingencies, right? And so, you know, look, it's possible that this is going to be a protracted, you know, down cycle, you know, that's going to be in a, it's going to be high inflation and, you know, it's going to lead to high unemployment and it's going to lead to, you know, big decline in consumer welfare and, you know, da, 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 da. You know, Larry, as an example, Larry Summers came out and said, basically, to get out of this inflationary spiral, the Federal Reserve needs to be willing to inflict 5% unemployment on the economy for five years. Right. And it's like, you know, I don't know, like maybe that's right. Maybe that's not right. You know, but like there, there are scenarios in which like things could get pretty bad, you know, for, for, for quite a while. And so does it, you know, for example, does it make sense to have enough cash in the bank, you know, to be able to make it through the next few years, right, without having to raise money again? Like if, if you can, like that probably makes sense. On the other hand, does that mean that every company should be doing layoffs, right? And, and I think the answer to that is no. Like it, it really depends on the specifics of each company. You know, if a company has a tiger by the tail on a product that people want, and it's you know they're they're growing revenue, then they shouldn't be leaning in and trying to take share right now. Um, but you know, look if they're if they're struggling or if they don't yet have product market fit, you know, should they have a longer runway? You know, yes, they probably should. So I, I think we would we would just encourage people to kind of think in terms of scenarios and contingencies, and then and then think from first principles of what's right for your company. So in 1999, Dad, you were an investor. You had a whole portfolio of companies, and Mark, you had what one company? I'm assuming. <laughs> I'm assuming, uh, and. At what point were you like, "Hey, this is going to be bad"? Most because I, I think that is con- that has a historical track record. Now, it was not awesome for venture capital for like a span of time. The internet wasn't awesome for about five years. What did you do? What did you actually do? I guess for as an investor and as a founder. So uh, that time uh, we were completely reactive. We would scramble, try to raise money. People couldn't raise money. And, and what was worse was the government doubled down 
they made it even harder to raise money. They, they created something called Sarbanes-Oxley. And, uh, and it's weird, the government always comes in as a reaction to something that's happened, not thinking about what the repercussions are going to be. There were uh, a couple of companies that turned out to be scams. So they, they voted, you know, 99 to one in the Senate and, you know, almost every single congressman voted for this to create something called Sarbanes-Oxley. And if you ask Sarbanes or Oxley, did you really think this was a good idea? They say, well, we thought we, this was just a negotiating point and we'd have to negotiate down, but they just threw it all in with a kitchen sink and it made it going public almost impossible. And what that meant was we couldn't raise money from the public. So it rippled all the way down through the venture community and we couldn't raise any money. And so we had these companies that were growing super fast. Everything was going great and they couldn't raise the money they needed to grow. And then they, their, their growth would flatten out and people would leave because they said, oh, you know, this used to be a great company, but now it's sort of it's sort of flattened out. I don't really want to be here. And so then they would spiral down. We lost four businesses that were like 100 million in revenues or better. And that was when 100 million was a really big deal. And uh, it's still a pretty big deal. I'm just going to tune in. <laughs> still a pretty big deal. And I'm hoping that as a reaction to this downturn, that our government doesn't step in like with big, big, thudding boots and uh, and try to pound us down again. This is the this is the kind of time where you deregulate and you free the markets up and you let people roll so that you don't have a hard landing. You get a soft landing. And I'm not sure which way. I, I mean, I do know our regulators like to regulate. Mark, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. So look. So I, I want to pair. I think we should pair a discussion. You know, the discussion of 2000 and the, the, the crash. Um, you know, with with basically 2008, which is as Tim Tim alluded to, was 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 actually a very different scenario. Yep. 2000 was it was a it was a it was basically a tale a tale of false hope for a long time. Um, so basically, what happened? And it, you know, like I don't know if this is going to be a crash like that again. But if but if it is, here's what's going to happen. Which is um, basically you, you're going to have false hope. You have false hope in the in the in the form of basically false recoveries. And so Tim probably remembers there were, I think on the way down, if you look at the NASDAQ chart on the way down from the peak in March of 2000 down to the bottom in like 2003 or 2004, there were like basically five fake rallies, right? And so there were like five times when basically stocks took off again. And basically, you know, people, entrepreneurs were like, oh, took a deep breath and were like, ah, you know, thank God, you know, it's now it's finally going to recover. And then of course it, it, it fell, it rolled over again. One of my favorite quotes in business was from Michael Eisner, who was the CEO of Disney years ago. And he once said, um, he said, you, you can fall off the floor, right? Like you, you, things can always get worse. Um, <laughs> another line I used a lot in those days was the light at the tunnel can, can be an oncoming train. Uh, <laughs> it's always darkest right before it goes pitch black. I've got a whole series of these. And so like it, it can get really bad. Like it, it can spiral, right? It can spiral in a way where it, you know, it feeds on itself. You know, a, a friend of mine, I just had lunch with a friend of mine is very smart. And he pointed out when people talk about unemployment, we actually don't think about unemployment properly. We talk about unemployment in terms of population percentage, but from an economic standpoint, we should think about unemployment in terms of income, dollars of unemployment, right? And he's like, you know, the problem when like when the problem when like layoffs hit the tech sector, right, is you're laying off 
high wage people. And then that, that is, that's economically, that's worse because it, it, it is a withdrawal of even more consumer spending because those people punch above their weight in terms of consumer spending. So you're actually pulling even more consumer spending out of the, uh, out of the market, you know, which isn't to say that that's like, you know, better or worse than laying off lower income people. It's not the point. It's just that like when, when tech companies start laying people off, you're pulling a lot of demand out of the economy and that has sort of ripple effects. You know, kind of further downstream. So, so you know, these things can get bad. They can they can spiral. And you know, to Tim's point, like the government can very easily lean in and make it worse. Like they, they have many many ways of making it worse. It's hard to get this, but if you if you try to get to an objective understanding, that. they have many many ways of making it worse. Well, they, Just... they so there's this famous the, the history of the Great Depression. You know, this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but like. The Great Depression, like there are a lot of modern sort of, you know, reasonably smart people who now look back at the Great Depression now that enough time has passed or maybe it's not quite so politicized a topic. And they kind of say, well, actually, like if you look at the numbers, the economy started to recover. It was like in 19. So the, the, the 1929 crash happened. 30, 31 were really bad. And then 32, 33, the economy started to kind of get back up on its feet and, and growth started. And if you look at the charts, GDP growth went positive again and unemployment started to fall. And then basically this this wave of government programs hit under the Roosevelt administration with like new regulations and new spending. If you're a conservative or libertarian, you're like cause and effect is very clear, which is the recovery is going to happen and they killed it. Right. And, and, they, and, and basically the numbers like the economy fell from a cliff. Now, you know, liberals would look at that and they reach a different conclusion. They say, well, it would have been even worse. Otherwise, you know, it was just like it was going to fall even worse had we not fixed it, whatever, whatever. But like. You know, my point is, even the Great Depression, like it looked like it was going to recover and then it just like really fell apart. And so, yeah, these things can spiral now, which is what happened in 2000. Now, look, having said that, in 2008, we all thought that the same thing was going to happen. Like we all were like, oh, by the way, is this a family show? It's kind of a show because you guys are related, but you're both above. No, my no, my kids, my kids aren't on here. It's oh, okay. You, you can swear. You're both above the age of like you know, twenty. I guess ten, twenty-one. You're able to drink. You're all able to drink and smoke now, so I can say. <laughs> In 2008, we went, oh shit, right? It's 2000 all over again. Oh my God, the whole world's going to end. Like this, this is horrible for tech. It's going to be like 2000 again. And, and then 2008, it really wasn't. Like it really wasn't that bad. Um, and the reason it wasn't that bad in retrospect is that 2000 was, a, was an equity-driven crash. Stocks fell, right? And then the broader economy got hit. Uh, 2008 was a credit crisis. It was a different kind of crash. Bonds fell, credit fell, debt went bad. And, and you know, equity got hit, but it wasn't an equity-driven crash. And then, of course, in tech, tech is like the least levered sector of the economy. Like our companies don't run on debt. Our companies don't run on debt because they can't raise debt because <laughs> many times. We- banks won't loan our companies money. Like banks won't loan our companies money during the good times, right? Much, much less the bad times. And so our companies run on equity rather than debt. And so it actually turned out in a credit crisis, it actually wasn't that bad for tech. And in fact, a lot of you know today's leading tech companies grew really fast and you know gained a lot of value between call it 2006 and 2012 during kind of that whole period where the economy got all screwed up a lot of tech companies actually did fine and so and so that was a, a case of the reverse thing where like we were all convinced every, you were, we were going to fall off the floor again and it just turned out it just wasn't that bad and, and i bring I, I bring that up because it's like the, the pattern matching is really hard because it's like okay if we pattern match in 2000 it's like katie bar the door fire everybody like batting down the hatches going to survival mode if it's 2008, it's like, no, gut through it, right? And don't don't freak out, um, right? Or, you know, we're somewhere in the middle. And, and, you know, I say here again, it's just like, it's just too early to tell. Yeah, we're six months into a downward movement, I guess, is sort of what's happening. The most positive thing I could say, and to Tim's point on how the government can screw things up, is like, 
the government does need a baseline level of competence to screw things up, right? They had to pass Sarbanes-Oxley. So they had to go through a process. They had to actually yeah. have a movement. They had to pass a piece of legislation. Yeah. Um, right. So, and like, is the current government actually capable of passing anything? Like, apparently not. So, you know. It so, may- yay. Yes. <laughs> because- hey. So they might not make it worse now. It might be in a couple of years. There's a term for anybody who's married. There's a very important term in marriage called a strategic incompetence, <laughs> right? which is like, oh, geez, honey, you know, I would love to start the dishwasher. I have no idea how it works. You know, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to change the toner of the printer. I really, I've never even figured that out. You know, maybe the government has achieved an advanced level of strategic incompetence. Maybe they actually can't pass anything. Maybe that will actually help us. I don't know. I, my dad and I are very familiar with strategic incompetence. So uh, <laughs> I've never thought of it as strategic. I think I think Mark is much more honest than I am. <laughs> okay, I've never admitted to that being strategic. So, so it, it sounds like during those times. So there, I, I like that we brought up sort of 2008 because that was when I started my career. Hey, oh, but during the boom and bust and in, in 2008, what were th- things that you did right? in reference to the overarching system and what were things that you did wrong? Like individually, did you have decisions you made that ended up being completely wrong? Well, I would just say like, we thought, I'll give you a couple of things. Ben talks about this in his book. So we were basically early cloud. We we're basically pre AWS cloud. And so we started out the gate selling to um, dot coms and they were buying, you know, they were buying services, our services as fast as they possibly could. They all wanted to outsource uh, their backend. Um, and then we were also selling to enterprises. We were selling to big companies and we were specifically selling to the online divisions of the big companies. So this was in the, you know, this was in a period where, you know, if Amazon is threatening the bookstores, then Barnes and Noble creates, you know, barnesandnoble.com. They've got an internet division, an online division. And then, and then, you know, basically that division is motivated by fear of the dot-coms. And so they're often, then they would also be our customers. And so our, our business was kind of like 50, 50, um, you know, the startups and then the, the, the big enterprises. You know, our business kind of collapsed at the time. It, it collapsed by, uh, you know, first of all, just the dot coms. The dot coms started detonating, right? So they, as Tim said, like they couldn't raise money, they started to go under, and so we just we just had this wave of companies, you know, of, of customers, these young customers that just went, went bankrupt. And you know, it's like you know, so we get these phone calls, like, sorry, I'm not going to be able to pay my bill now or at any point in the future. I don't, you know, the, the, you know, you, you know, we have a services contract, but we're going bankrupt, and so it's it's all null and void. Um, and so, and then, you know, then of course, you know, then the thought was, well, okay, thank God we've got these enterprise customers because, you know, they, you know, they're, you know, they're not going to go out of business. In fact, they might actually benefit from the dot-coms not threatening them. But then of course the, the big companies, <laughs> what they did was the minute the dot-coms weren't a threat anymore, the big companies started shutting down all their internet divisions. And so, and, and this was famously during the period where, uh, Borders, which was a big bookstore chain at the time, uh, compete. So Borders and Barnes and Noble were the two big American bookstore chains. Borders actually famously capitulated on the internet and they outsourced their entire internet business to Amazon. Not to Amazon Web Services, to Amazon Retail. They had their website just be like private labeled Amazon.com, which it turns out was not good for their business in the long run. And, and they then went bankrupt. But that was, ref- oh, I'll give you another example. Um, uh, News Corp, uh, Tim will remember, News Corp had bought MySpace. And there had been this bidding war for MySpace at the time. And Viacom at the time was, at least the story goes, one of the other bidders for, for MySpace. And they were kind of uh, teed off that they didn't get it. And then the world kind of fell apart. Um, and then Sumner Redstone, who ran Viacom at the time, gave this speech. And he's basically like, thank God we didn't get that deal. Like, thank God the internet turned out to not be a thing, right? Like, you know, thank God the internet basically turns out to just be like fake, fraud, stupid, like not going to happen. Like the, the dot-com crash has proven that the internet's not like a serious thing. 
And so these enterprises all started shutting down their, their internet divisions. And so then we had basically a wave of those customers bailing. And so we, it was basically this, it was basically this, like this, this whole sequence of, uh, uh, of sort of uh, detonations. Things we did right, I'll tell you one thing we did right, we went public. Uh, we did something kind of really crazy. We went public in 2001. Uh, Tim will remember, like, what it, talk about a contrarian move, going public in 2001. There were two tech companies that went public in 2001 in total. One was PayPal with, like, you know, the smartest team that's ever been assembled. You know, the other was us. Like, we, we were it. We were both it. We both went public for the exact same reason, which was we needed the money. I think the date we priced our IPO, I think we were three weeks away from not being able to meet payroll. And so, you know, people always ask, well, why would you go public? And it's like, one of the reasons is because, like, you need the money because you're going to go bankrupt otherwise. So, you know, we, we gutted our way all the way through that. We did a turn, you know, then the, the long story that's events, but we did a turnaround as a public company and ultimately it worked out. But, you know, it was kind of like walking through a minefield with, you know, detonations happening all around us the entire time. And so, you know, there it was basically like through that wave, the mistake was basically everything that you, un every time you underestimated how bad things were going to get, you made a mistake. Well, I'll give you another example. So every management training program will always tell you, you only, if you're going to do a layoff, if you have to do a cost restructuring in a, in a company, and you're going to do a layoff. You only ever a, a layoff is a breach of trust with the employee base, and, and the problem with breaching trust with the employee base is very hard to rebuild. So if you have to do a layoff, you want to do it only once, which means you you want to be able to cut deep enough, uh, you know, to, so you only have to do it once. And and usually what experienced CEOs will tell you is if you're going to cut, you need to cut like thirty percent because you you don't want to take the risk that you're going to come back and cut. But you know, tech companies like you know everybody, you love everybody. The idea of you know nuking thirty percent of the people just seems horrifying, and so you cut ten percent. Right. And then things get worse. And then you cut 10%. And then you things get worse. And then you cut 10%. And now you've cut 30%, but you've done it across three layoffs. But by the way, the world is still falling apart. So then you do it again and again and again and again. And you know, there were there were a lot of companies in that era that did like they would do six, seven, eight layoffs of like 10% each time. Like, don't do that. Like that's that's a really big problem. That, you know, that's that's the opposite compound interest. That's, yeah, the, that's the very bad, bad, very bad downward slide. And so, you know, like I said, the story of that era was like not taken seriously enough the extent to which things were going to downward spiral. But look, having said that, those lessons were not very useful, like I said, for 2008. Uh, like a lot of people carried a lot of scar tissue from 2000. They applied those lessons in 2008 and they cut when they shouldn't. Um, and they kind of disarmed their company at a critical time, the development of their markets. And it turned out like it just wasn't that bad. And so th th this is the difficulty involved in calibrating. Uh, and again, what I would say, you know, people are going to walk away from this and be like, well, he didn't actually, you know, give us any advice on what to do because it's just like he kept doing this on the one hand, on the other hand thing. <laughs> <laughs> we had two crashes and both of them were different. It's basically like that. And look, it's just like history, you know, smart coins said history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. You don't get direct, you know, look, you, you just don't, you don't get a direct repeat of something that happened before you, you get something different. But having said that, look, I just go back to my, my top level message. Like it really depends on the specifics of your company. And, you know, look, there's no question there are companies that are out there right now where just like the burn rate is too high and they don't have enough cash in the bank and they're going to need to raise, you know, before the market, you know, is, is before there's a good chance the market will have recovered. Um, and the, the post on the last round was set way too high. You know, by the way, you know, this, this whole time, you know, a lot of us have been giving this spe the speech to, to founders saying, like, don't overdo it on valuation because there will come a time when, like, it may be a real problem to have your post set too high. You know, it's very natural for founders to disregard that particular piece of advice and set their post to be super high. It, it, it feels great until it doesn't. And when it doesn't is when you have to raise new money again and you have to clear the post on the last round and you just can't do it because the pricing in the market's changed. And so, you know, there are, there are companies that need to do things in their cost structure and need, need to fix things. And they need to think very hard about how to do that. Um, you know, look, there are other companies that are in multiple lines of business where one business is working and another one isn't. It, you know, th this may be a time to really think about whether you should be in both, both of those lines of business. 
And then look, there are other companies, like I said, that they have the tiger by the tail. They're at the beginning of a secular product cycle. They've built something people want. They're starting to really hit. Jim alluded to this, but like, you know, these downturns can be very good for the best companies because they can really eliminate a lot of companies. They can take out a lot of competition. They can take out a lot of noise. They can make it easier to recruit. They can make it easy for the winning company to gain share. And so there are companies that should lean hard into this, but it's just, it's really important to be very honest with yourself and very thoughtful and very clear-minded and have a real sense of contingencies and scenarios and how these things might unfold. And, and kind of, there's a term you hear sometimes, all weather, which is like basically make sure that the company is, as much as you can, is kind of ready for all scenarios. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, Mark. I think people look at that and say, that was good thinking. Both sides, be prepared for whatever comes. The worst and best for me, the worst was really inside our organization. People got shaky because they they thought they were on this huge winner. And then all of a sudden things weren't quite right. And we made it into a democracy, which I think was a mistake, uh, where everybody had a vote on you know, whatever we were investing in. And that kind of gave up the passion side of our business. That was inside our business. I think outside our business, I think we did a pretty good job because what we needed to do was shock the entrepreneur into, you know, we had an, I met with an entrepreneur and he said, uh, I said, well, so, you know, what are your revenues? And it's like almost nothing. And how many people do you have? And he said, 400. And I said, you got to cut that to three. And he, and he said, 300. And I said, no, three people, <laughs> you have no business. There is, this is going to be really rough. You've got to cut it all the way down. He didn't take the advice. He did. He did what you mentioned, Mark. He, he, you know, let 10%, go 10%, 10%, 10%, 10%. And then he hit a complete wall. The whole business went out of, went out of business. Another guy did take the advice and he was able to sweep through and survive. And it was it was rough, but it, it he had to you know, do a lot to get there. But he did it and he was super strong by the end. I mean, by the time he made it through that very difficult time from 2002 to 2006, you know, he had a real winner because he, he was so resilient. But the other thing, Mark, hinted at was that you drop 10% and then 10%, 10% for the financial people, they think, oh, okay, you've dropped 30%. But what you've done is you create a huge paranoia in your business. It's like, who's next? When's the next layoff? What am I going to have a job in three weeks? Where and immediately all the best people have their resumes out and you've lost you know, all the strongest people in your company. The key is use an opportunity like this where things are going badly and you realize that it might be a little tough and say, we're going to do a layoff and use it to just get rid of the whiners, get rid of the people that are whining and complaining about their job and how horrible, how hard they're working and all that stuff. Just clear the decks. And then you're going to have a company that's like super strong. All the great people stay because they're going, God, we got rid of the winders. We're going to go. The revenues keep coming in because the customers are there. They just, you know, they don't care if you, you, you have 20 or 30% fewer people. They just want to make sure that they're getting the product or service that they want. 
and the company does quite well. So having it when you have a layoff, a big layoff one time, and you will make it through the the dark times. Is it, is so it, that, I think that's right. And and so there is an emotional thing that happens to a company that you do not want to have. Uh, you want to have the positive emotional thing happen to your company. I've always had great stability in my business. The people all stay with me all the time, except when things are really great or really bad. Then everybody's a little loose in the saddle. They're all ready to go. They got their resumes out. They're trying to leave, except Karen, who's here. She's stuck with me through thick and thin. Okay. <laughs> Karen is the best. Uh, <laughs> She's right well, over here. Both of you have sort of talked about what what I've I just sort of thought about while both of you were talking, and it was about sort of the the emotional toll it's taking on everyone. We're we're in a world where most companies are st- they sort of went hybrid remote in some capacity, right? Like, how do you maintain the enthusiasm through that? This is a new tool, so like I, I know that this is not from the internet bubble, but I think people on this call are all remote in some capacity. We're remote two days, three days a week, like. Where do you think you can bond the teams to make sure that that doesn't happen, where they don't get shaky in the city? The good people, obviously, the great people who you want to be on the ship. How do you make sure that they're staying? Yeah, so let's talk about so talk about retention generally. So, um, so, so, so Tim probably has this experience. Like, re, I just use the word retention. We probably shouldn't even talk in terms of retention because, like, by the time we're talking about retention, people are already on their way out the door. <laughs> like, Tim, you probably get the call from companies bang being like, "Boy, you know, our, our key engineer is going to quit. Can you please get on the call, get on the phone, and convince him not to quit?" <laughs> right. Right. And the, and the answer is no, no, I can't. Like, that's impossible. Like, I, I, you know, I mean, I can, I, I'll invent cold fusion before I can, I can convince that, you know, somebody to, when they're already out the door, you know, so look, re- retention is on the, uh, basically on the back end of other things having gone wrong. Um, look, I would just go back to basics on the question of retention, which goes to Tim's point, which is, is basically why, why do people leave? You do exit interviews of enough people over a long enough period of time, what you basically find is people leave for a few reasons. They basically leave, they leave because they don't like their manager. Like that, that's, that's a really big one. I'll, I'll talk about that. They leave because they don't have any friends at work, um, which goes to this like remote thing. And then they leave because they feel like they're not learning and growing. And, and those are like the three big things. You know, there's also like, you know, there's also to Tim's point, there's also like we're losing, like we're getting our ass kicked. Although what you find is often companies that are losing often have surprisingly high retention and actually have groups where the you know, retention is nearly 100%. Because everybody just like likes being at the company so much. Like they, if they've got a great manager, they got friends at work, and they feel like they're learning and growing. You know, they they won't want to leave even if the company's not doing that well. Um, and so it's almost always in the micro of the employee experience: manager, peers, and then learning and growing. So what's interesting about each of those is like any any CEO can do things on all three of those, right? You you can't do things to recover the person who's already out the door, but you can do things to create the kind of environment where everybody does have a great manager. Right. Everybody does have friend at works, friends at work, and everybody does feel like they're learning and growing. And so we'll just take each of those in turn. So everybody has a manager they like and trust. Like you can do management training. Right. It, it, like it's, it, it, it is it is still quite rare for companies to actually formally train managers. Right. And actually have like high expectations on managers and to hold managers to performance standards about how they manage their, their groups. Right. And so but, but you, you know, you have the ability to do management training and define what it means to be a great manager in, in your in your company. Right. And there, there's, you know, there's there, we, we've written a lot of material on this. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff you can draw on, but like you can actually train managers to be great. So that, 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 that helps a lot. By the way, on the learning and growing, I'll just jump to the third one. Like, you know, how many companies have a formal program for employee development? 
right? How many, how many, how many, how many companies, especially younger companies, have a program where every employee has a written career development plan that they write with their manager, where it basically says, here's how I want my career to develop over the next five years. Here are the skills that I want to learn. Here are the responsibilities that I need to have. And here are the here's basically my progress against that. And, and then how, how many of those people have the managers or the executives in the company working with them to try to advance them in their careers? And so that's something that every company can do. And then the hybrid remote thing, I think it hits the middle one the most, right? Which is, do I have friends at work? And, and that, you know, that's a specific case of this just broader question of like, how do companies basically have cohesion and bonding uh, in a remote environment? And, you know, look, different companies have different approaches on this. I think in our portfolio, I think you could say some companies just think that people just have to be back in person and that's just required to have that. Some companies think that they've actually developed a way to have that bonding happen remotely. And they just, they, you know, they use software tools to do that. Um, and they, they think they have a way to do that. There's a bunch of companies, including, by the way, our, our own firm that are running in a more remote hybrid way now, you know, than we did before. But, you know, we're putting a really big focus on offsites, right? And so you're not necessarily with your colleagues and coworkers and friends every day, um, like you would have been in the past. But, you know, every four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, you are face to face and you're having like an intense social bonding experience. And we kind of des- designed the offsites to make sure that that's accomplished. And so I, I think managers, you know, depending on which model you're going for, I think you really have to think hard about how that bonding takes place. Yeah. yeah. Dad, um, do you have any thoughts? I, I've had a big problem with remote I've, because I had, I, I built this whole area around San Mateo with Draper University and Hero City. And we had three new conferences a week coming through here. And we had 80 companies all being started here. We had, uh, the school that was running four times a year. And so we had this flow of people. So I had this flow of information and it was all based on all these people I, I had met. And then all of a sudden they were all gone. This is just me personally. I looked at that and I said, boy, I got to figure something out here. Where am I going to get my flow of information? And so I had to do a lot of reading I tried the Zoom, lots of Zoom calls, and it was like I had 10 separate Zoom calls in a day. And I, I kind of went, oh, my God, this is just crazy. This, is, this can't be life. And so I really did have trouble with it. So when we were as soon as we could to get back to work, I just said, I'm going to be here Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I kind of did like Mondays as a warm-up day and Fridays as a catch-up day. And so Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm here. Maybe they come, maybe they don't. We've sort of allowed that to flourish inside our, our organization. They can do it whichever way it wants. One of our analysts moved to New York. Um, the one who runs Draper University moved to Texas. We're still adjusting, but it does feel like the human thing is coming back, and I, I need it. it. Clearly, I've way I operate, I need it. And you're both primarily in the Bay Area, maybe uh, in a couple of different places, if you can just go venture out and see, see people. Do you, do you think that, I don't know if there's any comparison between 2008, 2000 for internet versus credit bubbles, <laughs> but do you think that this will push people to cities or is this, uh, it, does it matter like at all as, as the, let's say we are in a recession, if this is sort of a, it's going to be sort of slower for a little while, like, is that something, is that a thing? 
So I think here, I think the secular matters more than the cyclical right now on this. This may change, but at least for right now, my sense basically is there's a re, sort of a reprocessing in people's heads about, you know, geography and working styles and how these companies are, are running, where they locate, you know, sort of as a consequence of the great COVID, you know, kind of experience that everybody went through. And so my, you know, my, my kind of working hypothesis is you just, you're going to have like a spread of outcomes um, at the geographic level. You're going to, you know, the Bay Area will continue to be important. You know, but if the Bay Area was, you know, 80% of innovation in the U.S. up until 2020, then maybe it'll go, it'll be 40% at 80%. The top 10 other cities, including, you know, specifically New York and L.A., but a bunch of others, you know, will, will rise greatly in importance. And I think that that's already happening. And then, you know, there will be a lot of other places, you know, where people choose to locate, you know, either either for companies or, or just as individuals. And so you'll, you'll have like a geographic kind of flattening or kind of, you know, diffusion of, of, of activity kind of throughout throughout the country, which which, by the way, I think is very healthy. Right. Like the, the Bay Area was too full, by which I mean, the tech was too concentrated here. Our politicians took it too for granted. It became impossible to build housing. You know, it became impossible to build transit. Quality of life was really falling, you know, pretty hard over the last decade for what people could buy for a dollar in the Bay Area to be able to like, you know, have a have an environment for their family. And so, you know, and then just like the, the, the politics in, in California, in the Valley, like you just you can't build new housing, you can't build roads, nothing was going to change. Um, so things were just going to get really bad from a quality of life standpoint for a lot of people. And so, you know, it, it was time for like a more tech activity to kind of flow outside Northern California. So so COVID is a good catalyst for that to happen. And then look, like I said, I think at the company level, you're going to have some companies that insist on full in-person. You're going to have some companies that are full remote. You're going to have a lot of companies that are somewhere in the middle with some sort of hybrid model that they're going to try to figure out. And basically, I think for the next five years, we're going to run a big national experiment in business in, the, in America, which is like, okay, what, you know, what's possible and what works. And some companies are going to configure in a way that's just not going to work really well. And then they're going to change and probably pull everybody back into the office. Other companies are going to probably figure out new management methods and new tools and new software systems that let them be more remote and distributed. And then they'll, they'll have a certain advantage. Uh, you know, look, one theory is startups are going to be much better off because, you know, big companies, if I have an existing big company and I've got 80,000 employees and I need to kind of retrain and relocate and figure out how to recalibrate it in some totally new way of working, like who knows if that's even possible. Right. Whereas if I'm starting a new company today from scratch and I can design a management culture and a set of systems to be able to run in a, in a new in a new remote or hybrid way, you know, maybe startups are just going to be better off. They're going to be you know better able to kind of adapt to this new world. So so I think that stuff all like I think that this is a big secular change and it's, and it's, and it's very exciting for a lot of reasons. You know, look, if there's like a severe recession, then, yeah, look, people are going to get very risk averse. Um, and they're going to, you know, start thinking differently about how they want to, you know, what, what kind of, you know, risks that they want to take in their lives. They're probably going to want to be in locations where there are more, you know, employers like within driving distance. But by the way, look, if there's a big recession also, like, you know, housing prices are going to come down and it's going to become possible, you know, maybe for some people to live in places today that they can't afford. So, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see what happens. I've always, since probably 2000, I believe that governments are in competition with each other. They always had these monopolies, these land-based monopolies, but all of a sudden we are geographically open. We can travel wherever and we can see each other wherever through Zoom or whatever. And, uh, and so now it's really an interesting time. We have something called the Draper Innovation Index that I created through this nonprofit. And they are judging which it's all data driven and it's which states are the ones that are attracting all the entrepreneurs and why and which countries are attracting the most attractive for entrepreneurs and it's in real time it it moves in real time currently 
Florida is number one, Texas number two, California has moved to number eight. And in the U, the U.S. is still number one, but Singapore and Switzerland are close second and third. What it does, it, it makes me realize that there are a couple of things that, it, it, first of all, Adam's got one foot in Texas and one in California. I, we have an office in Texas. We are in, investing all over the world, so I could be domiciled anywhere. When we all started being remote because of COVID, I started to look at my team and the, if the, the ones who are in California cost me so much more. And when I wanted to add to my team, I thought, well, look, look I'm, if I'm going to just see, see you in a Zoom video, I might as well be you know, hiring from Pakistan or from Ukraine or from somewhere. It changed my whole thinking. I think the government of California should wake up and realize that every time they put another regulation on businesses, whether it's, you know, you can't build here or you've got to, uh, you know, take, you know, 20 hours of uh, sexual harassment training or you've got to do this or that, you are pushing people out of, you're pushing your businesses out of your state. And the ones that are accepting it are saying, hey, do whatever you want here. And the best example here was I met the leadership from the El Salvador government. And they it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And they've always been a horrible government and corrupt and the whole system's been a mess. And all of a sudden they said, we're gonna just turn this into a trust and freedom country. And we're gonna make Bitcoin a national currency. And they did it. And all of a sudden I was talking to these guys and they were saying, oh yeah, we're using open node and everybody's jumping in. We use crypto for accounting. We do this and this. And I was thinking, oh my God, they are the next, you, you go forward 40 years. This is going to be one of the wealthiest countries in the world. They're so far ahead of the US because our in the US, when, when a retailer this, you know, is deciding whether to use, you know, Bitcoin so they can save two and a half to 5%. They're, they're going through all these machinations and, and, and a company that's starting here in the U.S. has to check with the SEC and the CFTC and every three letter word out there in order to do something, anything. They're coming down on our startups before they start. And meanwhile, it's totally trust and freedom down there, and they are going to just thrive. Uh, in China, it's even worse. China has totally had this lockdown, and it's kind of ruined China for the next five decades. But the U.S. still has the possibility that they can, they can stay on top as an innovative center, but they've got to back off. They've got to allow startups to innovate, try new things, build the DeFi system, build NFTs, do all that stuff. All of that is happening in El Salvador, and it's happening in all these other countries, little countries, too, that sort of look and say, hey, the dollar doesn't work for me. I'm going to try this Bitcoin thing because then I don't have to deal with the IMF. I don't have to deal with all the, you know, all the hassles out there. This is globally, all those countries that are geographically based, but all those governments are in competition with each other for us, for the entrepreneurs of the world, the brains of the world, the money of the world, the businesses of the world, they're in competition. They've got to 
or they're accountable to their people now that people can move. Very interesting. And I think you're right. Very exciting time because now, hey, we can be very distributed. We can do uh, whatever it is that we need to do. And, uh, uh, and we just do it in other countries. One of the questions I wanted to ask a little earlier on the individuals of both of you was, you've both sort of tracked each other's careers in different ways. Probably you've met with each other a fair number of times. What was one thing that in their career you were jealous of that they did? Yeah. <laughs> Mark, you want to go first? Tim, I was always jealous. I mean, I, the, the fact that Tim was always, it was the fact that Tim was always on the leading edge and has been, I think, you know, basically for your entire career, always whatever is like the most, the boldest, most provocative, most interesting new idea. And, and, and the total fearlessness about engaging with those ideas and those entrepreneurs um, has just been amazing to watch for a very long time. There's a thing, let me, let me explain why I think that's the case. There's a thing that happens in venture capital, and you see this with a lot of older, older VCs. There's a thing that happens. It is, it is very possible and arguably easy to get cynical, right? Um, and because basically what happens is like, so first of all, you're saying no almost all the time. Like you say no to almost everything that you see. So if, and that's just going to make you cynical if you're not careful. Then you see all these people who come in and like pitch you all these ideas and like a lot of them don't work. Right. And so it's like, and then you start to feel like, wow, I'm glad I didn't invest in that because like it really didn't work. And then you make a bunch of bets and then a bunch of those don't work. Right. And then you, you basically grow scar tissue and you basically get to the point where you just basically like, yeah, I saw that idea before it didn't work. I remember in 1994, somebody tried that and I invested in a company in 2006 and did this, and that didn't work. And you'll, you'll meet these guys and, so, and sometimes they just, they're, they're like, you know, so they've been successful, but they're like bitter and, and they just, they're, their aperture for ideas just like shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And, you know, Tim, you tell me, but it feels like yours just keeps expanding. All I was thinking when you said that was, I just wish we had more Mark Andreessen's on the planet. That's all <laughs> I was thinking. I was just thinking, oh my God, we need more guys like this. Mark has like totally innovated the venture business, completely transformed it, you know, built this incredible industry changer in A16Z. And I think, God, that's fantastic. I, you know, I kind of look at it and I just go, oh my God, we need more Mark Andreessen's people with clear vision, clear understanding of, and a, a global sense, a sense of how the world works and, and uh, clearly thinks about how, you know, how to operate. And he can, <laughs> unlike me, he can hold together a big institution. And I've got to say that that is a skill I don't have. <laughs> I mean, that A16Z, that, I mean, he's got, a, it's a big organization and he has changed the entire nature of venture capital. And, and boy, um, he also knows how to raise money, but you know, that's the, the up market. He nailed it just right. So yeah, I was, I sort of, I just want more guys like him, guys, girls like him that can think clearly and vote better and you know, <laughs> be, be a, you know, build our economy and make for, you know, I'm, I, I sort of am one of the, I, I guess this is maybe just me, but, you know, I look at Mark Andreessen in the same light. I look at Larry Ellison, Steve Jobs, the Zuckerberg and Bezos and Elon, where they are doing something and they're doing it so well that schadenfreude kicks in and people start envying them. 
Whereas what they should be doing is bowing down and respecting them. Because think of what these people have done for our world. I mean, it's just incredible. And it's hard for people to understand, you know, where their shoes came from and where their food comes from, their clothing, their shelter, all that. But if they really kind of looked at themselves, they should say, look, Bezos, way to go. You know, I needed a toothbrush and it showed up the next day. I needed a, you know, whatever it is, you know, a toothbrush. It couldn't have made him money, (laughs) but the guy shipped me a toothbrush. And I look at Steve, you know, what Steve Jobs has put, you know, his vision on this phone and all the all the products that he's created. They're really extraordinary. And what Mark has done for venture capital is equally extraordinary. He has jumped entrepreneurs up quickly through his programs. He said, hey, you know, look, we can get a really good designer here. We can put a really good fundraiser in here. We can put a, you know, those ideas may have like skirted my brain, but they did not. They, there was no way I wanted to run a big business that would be sort of an industry changer like that. And he's done it. So way to go, Mark. Anyway, more Mark Andreessen's. I, and I with, don't feel that jealous. I don't have that jealous bone. I have more of a like, go <laughs> forth and multiply many, many times. Thank you two so much for participating and shedding light on the situation at hand. And I've got an incredible amount of this. So thank you so much. And thanks for all the support all these years, both of you. Way to go. Go boost. Of course. Good. Thank you, Tim. Later. Thanks, Mark. Great to have you here.